Welcome to the IPv6 Buzz podcast, where we dare to dive into the 128-bit address space wormhole. Quick reminder, there's sponsorship opportunities available for IPv6 Buzz and the other Packet Pusher podcast shows. So if you're interested, you know, you can come head over to packetpushers.net slash sponsorship and you can get all the details. And if you got something cool working with V6, we definitely want to hear from you because we're always about V6 because after all, it is the IPv6 Buzz. <laughs> So I'm Ed Horley with my co-host, Tom Coffey and Scott Hogan. Today, we're going to be talking about designing IPv6 transition technologies and some of the, I don't know, do's, don'ts, things that are going to get you, things that are maybe don't work the way you think. And I thought it'd be fun to sort of, well, we thought it'd be fun to talk about this sort of stuff because, hey, we're V6 geeks. So <laughs> let's jump in, talk about it. I don't, I don't know what, I, I, I suppose we probably should narrow it down and, and talk about some specific transition technologies because there's a handful that are used a heck of a lot more than the plethora of, you know, 20, 40 or whatever crazy number of transition technologies that are actually available out there for folks to use. Um, yeah, we should probably like take a couple off the table right away just so folks know that we're not talking about stuff that they don't want to use um because yeah. there yeah, are a few, so a few still out there that if you're new to v6 you might be you know you might be sort of led astray like oh this looks like it'll solve this problem and not realize that you know the the deployment footprint of that has shrunk to zero and is no longer supported uh, but you know you'll still find configuration <laughs> guides for it yeah. yeah maybe we don't talk about 6rd or ds light <laughs> or, or isotap or teredo or <laughs> yeah yeah there's there's a whole slew six to four um, yeah, there's there's a bunch that that fit in that category. I, I guess the simple one is that most enterprise folks and most, I would say, current deployments that are really evaluating the transition technologies are looking at NAT64 and DNS64. I think we could probably all sort of at least narrowly agree that that's probably a good starting point. Uh, there are a couple others that I think are worth mentioning, but I would say that was probably the majority of our customer engagements were really talking to them about use, making use of NAT64 and DNS64. Is that fair? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of people are like, where do I put the DNS 6.4 and where do I put the NAT 6.4? Because they sound like they go together, but they can be often, and they are often, run on different devices in the topology. So they don't have to be co-resident on the same device. Right. Okay. And why don't we start really quickly with describing what NAT64 and what DNS64 actually actually are, so so everyone sort of has a, a baseline understanding of of what that is. And and strangely enough, there's a reason for the order of the numbering of you know six two four and six to four and then four to six and then six to six I guess and four to four, <laughs> right? In all the naming conventions. So maybe we talk our way through a bit of that. Uh, sort of the use case scenario, but really NAT64 and DNS64 came about because we knew we wanted to deploy v6 and potentially v6 only, right? A v6 only configuration, but you still needed to be able to talk to IPv4 resources that may exist in your network. Probably server resources would be the most common or resources out on the public internet that are IPv4 only. And you wanted to be able to provide a way for those IPv6 only clients to be able to go talk to those resources without having to, you know, do some really strange things in regards to, you know, dual stacking and, and other things to try and make all of that work. You can obviously make that work through a proxy. So a traditional application proxy would totally work for this, right? Just talk V4 on one side, V6 on the other, and everything would work fine. Mm -hmm. But NAT64, DNS64, I think is a little bit more scalable maybe than a, than a traditional proxy service. Uh, that that could be debatable depending on on how you look at it today. Um, but certainly, you know, several years ago, that was 
that was probably holding more true. But NAT64 is all about doing network address translation from 624, right? And so we're we're allowing a v6 resource to talk to a v4 resource. And then we're using DNS to be able to resolve basically and provide a DNS record or quad A record type back for a resource that only has an A record that exists in the in the real world. And that's what the DNS64 side does. And correct me if I'm wrong, you guys. Um, but I think that in a nutshell sort of quickly describes what it does. Yeah, that's true. And then the NAT64 function can operate statelessly, which mm -hmm. would have a very high performance, you know, uh, and be much less constrained than a proxy. But most of the time, NAT64 is deployed in a stateful way. Right. It is doing stateful NAT, like we tend to think of NAT as being done for IPv4 to IPv4, NAT44, <laughs> stateful right. NAT. Exactly. And, and, and I guess why this is important is this allows organizations as they deploy IPv6 and IPv6 only to still connect and talk to their resources that may exist in their environment that may only be IPv4 resources and also talk to public internet resources that may be IPv4 only also. So it allows those V6 only devices to have full access to all of the internet. And this, there's some assumptions that go into the design. This. Yeah. So we'll get to those. I guess to a certain degree, we saw NAT64 and DNS64 get used pretty heavily in the service provider space, the mobile space, because they had V6 only there and they wanted to give access to all of the internet, right? So V6 to V6 is already solved, right? You're already running right. V6. But V6 to V4, they had to have some sort of transition te technology available to them. And so essentialized NAT64, DNS64 gives them that capability, right? So That's right. Yeah. Anyway, there's that's the quick sort of, you know, describing what's going on uh, for NAT64 and DNS64, which I think are as 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 we've mentioned are probably the most commonly used sort of solution offering. So maybe we describe this the how do you use them um, in in terms of the network topology side, and and where it's appropriate to use it, where it's not, where they actually fit within the network. Maybe we we noodle our way through that <laughs> in terms of what makes sense because it, it's. If you hear it initially, you would think, well, DNS 6.4, I'm just going to run that on all my DNS servers, right? right. That would be your sort of like, oh, I'm just going to run DNS 6.4 everywhere. They can build synthetic records for, for you know, the hosts that don't have, you know, actual IPv6 quad A records. We're just going to build them for them automatically based off of a prefix and, and do that on every single DNS server that we have, uh, that we operate. And that's not necessarily the case of what you want to do, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and I just just it always amuses me just to, as a side note here that that we use the word synthesize when we're talking about uh, creating DNS records for IPv6 hosts, um, basically creating a v6 record for an IPv4 resource, and we use the word we euphemistically use the word synthesize because what we're really doing right is spoofing. <laughs> we yeah, we're lying. Yeah. We're lying. <laughs> we're tricking. We're tricking the host. <laughs> yeah, if you're uh, if you're heavily invested in DNSSEC, you know you're you're off the ranch at that point. But but yeah, it, it is it is kind of a, a scenario where, from a scalability standpoint, if you're if you're new to it, you do think, well, this is something that I'm just I'm going to roll out everywhere. But as Scott mentioned, the really the key point is w where things go in the architecture where they need to be placed. Um, like the DNS 6.4 piece can kind of live anywhere, but then the NAT 6.4 piece, you have to get very much more deliberate. Yeah, you're running that on a on a router or a firewall. And so it's where those 
where is your router or where is your firewall, <laughs> you know? And so that's going to dictate where it is in your topology. Maybe it's close to the client or maybe those are centralized resources or they're at a perimeter or at an edge. And then that's where you're going to perform those functions. The NAT64 function is going to be run on a router or a firewall. Right. Okay. So the the router and firewall component for NAT64, what, what goes on there? Does it make use of the existing network address that it already has on its interface and it just overloads the the Jesus out of that like we do with IPv4? <laughs> <laughs> or, or do we have some other technique or strategy that we use with the NAT64 side? How do, how do we how do we go about the process of actually doing this? You can make a pool, you can make a V4 pool be larger than just a single address. So you have a little bit more uh, TCP port space to play with on the V4 side of the NAT64. Mm -hmm. On the V6 side, presumably that NAT64 device will just have a, a static V6 address and it'll participate in routing. And so you'll have a route, a V6 route in the V6 routing tables on the V6 side of this NAT64 device that says, you know, to get to the synthesized prefix, which is a slash 96, route that synthesized prefix to this router that's running this NAT64 function. So it directs the traffic coming from the V6 client to the NAT64 so it can perform that function. And then that NAT64 device will see aha, I see that you want to go to this destination, this V6 destination that is using this special address. You've been tricked by the DNS 6.4 into going there. And now I'm going to then out of that V6 destination address, extract the embedded IPv4 address in the last 32 bits, you know, beyond the slash 96 to the slash 128. You're going to extract the lower 32 bits that's the v4 address that you want to go to it will then statefully create a connection on the v4 side of that nat64 source from one of the pool addresses destined for the v4 address it just extracted from the v6 or go to the v4 address of the address right. that it just extracted from the synthesized ipv6 destination address and then make that connection outbound and then stitch them together statefully yeah, yeah. So, and, and just for folks on the design side, you, you're free to build as many prefixes as you want to assign for the NAT64 device for it to build, quote unquote, synthetic records, you know, whatever our, our little lies are going to be uh, mm -hmm. for particular uh, network address ranges uh, that you want to uh, want to set up. So you you can build this very distributed from a model basis, I think is, is easy to say, because you just, mm -hmm. you can you can assign different prefixes to different uh, NAT64 gateway locations. And uh, and they will use the appropriate address. So as long as the DNS corresponds to that, then you're good to go. Which means you probably want to have some sort of regionalized DNS name resolution that's as, as appropriate. So maybe if you're running different geographies, you might run DNS services in different geographies, even if you're using AnyCast, um, and you're going to provide a different prefix for the name resolution based off of mm -hmm. where that resource is located, um, so that it goes out and and uses the right the right prefix to reach reach the right NAT64 device to be able to go out and connect to the internet or connect to whatever resource you wanted to, mm -hmm. to, to actually go out and do. So that's an option also in terms of being uh, geographically redundant, 
Um, obviously, if the DNS service fails and you use another one on a different anycast, you're going to end up routing your traffic out a different NAT64 device, but that's okay. It'll still work. Right? Mm-hmm. It'll at least still function. It may be a little slower, but it'll still function because if you have to backhaul it across the US or something, but at least you know why is because the service failed. So that's mm-hmm. that's an acceptable failure failure mode. How, how you know NAT64 making that highly available? What do we typically do for that? I mean, that's one way to handle sort of the geographic redundancy, but we can also build highly available sort of teamed appliances, right? To sort of solve that problem and just fail over between them. Yeah, I guess I guess the design that that particular kind of design, um, maybe we're getting a little over our skis in in terms of the the actual deployment footprint of NAT64 DNS64 that's out there right now that's a little maybe a little more constrained to the data center maybe a little more mm-hmm. like like geographically or topologically you know n- not necessarily isolated but um, but not not so much like a sort of high availability scenario which kind of requires like next next level planning in terms of making sure that the routing is all consistent and that you've got your DNS topology. I, I, I think maybe we see that in, in some of the service provider deployments of, of DNS 6.4, NAT 6.4. Yeah, it's, I, th- I think there's probably going to be more interest in trying to figure out the high availability and sort of redundancy side of the NAT 6.4, DNS 6.4 as more transition happens, right, for enterprise groups mm-hmm. and they want to make sure that the service is available. But the easy way to get around that, obviously, is to is to dual stack enable as many services as possible, then you're just going to talk native IPv6, you know, uh, from IPv6 only resource to a dual stack resource. It's just going to talk IPv6 and you're, you're, you've avoided yeah. the whole problem. Yeah. And I guess that's, that's sort of the design trade-off, right? Cause if you, if you're really deep into, you know, how am I going to make DNS 64 NAT 64 sort of scale up for the whole network? It's like, well, at what point, you know, is it just simpler to just rely on, on dual stack? And chances are, that's probably where a lot of organizations are already at. And so they're looking to solve like corner cases with DNS 64, NAT 64. Yeah. Yeah. That's 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 fair. In terms of high availability and, and in terms of the prefix side, I think I think we sort of answered those in terms of like just routing availability. And then obviously let's let's talk about the one nuance around the DNS side. Cause this is this is an interesting one if you don't think about it and you haven't solved through it. And, and Scott was sort of the first one to point this out to me. It was like you don't necessarily want to make all of your hosts have access to the DNS 6.4 name server. Like it's not the one that you're going to want to make available to like dual stack servers, right? Or dual stacks, you know, client systems. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe we talk through that really quickly about why you're going to make sort of more unique or distinct DNS uh, resources available for one system versus another uh, and how that impacts stuff. Cause it's. Yeah. A dual stack client will do We'll send out an A record query and a quad A record query for a fully qualified domain name that wants to connect to. And those go to the DNS service. And, you know, the V4 A record query will come back with a V4 address. But if the destination that you're trying to reach is a V4 only host, if that DNS resolver is doing DNS 6.4, it will synthesize the v6 quad a record query and send back a synthesized or you know uh you know synthesized quad a record response back to that dual stack client as if it was a v6 only (laughs) right client trying to talk to a v4 destination and so now a dual stack client will end up with an 
a record, you know, for the V4 destination and a V6 synthesized address for the V4 destination. And then it, depending on happy eyeballs, it might actually try to make the connection to the DNS64 address, which then it's gonna, the traffic is going to go through a DNS64, which has a little bit of a performance penalty, just like a NAT would, a NAT44 would. Right. Instead of taking, you know, using its V4 address to just communicate natively V4 with the legacy service that it's trying to reach. It actually went an extra step and went through the NAT64 and you probably didn't intend for it to do that. Right. Yeah, exactly. And you and you don't know if you're going to have application performance issues or issues with NAT64, DNS64, because there's some key assumptions in the NAT64, DNS64, which is number one, that the app actually uses DNS mm -hmm. right? <laughs> to actually work. I know that sounds funny to say out loud, but you know, I you can't, uh, yeah, you just can't have embedded addresses and just assume that it's going to do the right thing, right? Because it's never going to query DNS to. Mm -hmm to go get a synthetic record built uh, to then steer it to the NAT64 device. So it just is never going to work, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know, stating the obvious, but you know, sometimes the obvious needs to be stated. Um, so just make sure that it's actually something that functions well with DNS and you don't have uh, anything odd going on there uh, in order to make that work. I don't know, what, what else do we need to sort of, from a bigger design picture, is there sizing, performance stuff, other considerations that we need to sort of be thinking our way through. I mean, obviously there's certain performance considerations because if you put, if you put the NAT64 on too small a device, if you put it on a Raspberry Pi <laughs> and, ex <laughs> and expect it to be working for your enterprise class, you know, <clears throat> traffic. And then unfortunately you have, you, you turned all this on, turned up a huge number of wireless clients as V6 only, and then and then pointed them at your IPv4 only data center, I think you're going to have structural problems, right? Like you're going to have some difficulty actually getting that to work uh, probably at scale for the performance that you want to get. Yeah. That's just a guess. Who knows? But new Raspberry Pis, you know, a, a, <laughs> pie, a pie, you get a lot of performance for, for you know, so, some, you know, a meager investment. You know, if you get a Pi 4B with eight gigabytes of memory, you know, they're, pretty remarkable little devices but you're right ed <laughs> <laughs> your, whole your whole data center behind that i don't know <laughs> maybe maybe not probably not it's, it's hanging off the ethernet cable because <laughs> it doesn't even have a mounting it's just yeah, hanging right. off the, yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that'd be funny someone walking along like why is this thing hanging here we just let's remove this <laughs> and I'm like no yeah, yeah that's so a, I, it's a good question about where where all of it sort of falls over. It's like the always the sixty four thousand dollar question. Where does this? You know, how 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 high can we scale this until it just falls over? And again, I, it goes back to design design uh, you know assumptions at the beginning. Like, what are you what are you trying to solve for? If you're if you're if you're basically like I, we're going to adopt v six, by gosh, and we're going to use DNS six four NAT six four everywhere to do it. Well. From a scaling exercise point, you you really have to pay you know much closer attention to it than if it's like I've got it you know I've got I want to have an IPv6 only data center I know I'm going to have this many servers I know you know you can you you know from a um, a capex perspective like how to sort of how to size that and chances are it's probably just going to be subsumed by what you already have at the edge of the data center already just whatever router that you have because the scale of of DNS 6.4 is not really the critical piece right it's really just the NAT. Mm -hmm. The, right. the hardware supporting the NAT. 
Um, so in, in most of those cases, I think you'd be, you'd be pretty safe. Um, but, you know, obviously it depends on the size of the data center, depends on the size of the IPv6 only network, uh, if, if that's how you're deploying it. Right. Yeah, I, I think the other consideration is, does your appliance support, for the DNS side, does your appliance support DNS 6.4? Not yeah, every, that's a critical one, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can I, I turn it on? Like, yeah. yeah, is it available? So you need to make sure that is available first. So the right. net, you, your appliance, you know, for DNS or whatever you're using for DNS, you need to make sure it supports DNS 6.4. If not, you need to offload it on that new device and run your DNS 6.4 there, which is perfectly fine to do too. That's not right. that's not a design challenge there. And then you need to make sure that your router or firewall device supports NAT 6.4 in the way that you expect. And then you should be able to test it in your proof of concept lab and get it to work. What DNS servers slash appliances uh, you know out there? What supports DNS 6.4? What doesn't? I think most of them do. Uh, but um, Microsoft DNS server. I don't know what the current state is. I'd have to look what the current configuration is for for whether you can run DNS 6.4. Um, it, it was available a long time ago, actually, in the earlier release versions, but it was all about uh, being able to use it for direct access. So it was sort mm -hmm. of narrow-scoped about doing NAT 6.4, DNS 6.4, specifically for direct access components, which, of course, they end-of-lifed. And, uh, and so that's no longer available. So I'm not 100% sure what the current state is. Um, so we'll probably have to do some digging on that side, but it is an area of sort of shortcomings for, for the Microsoft side. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I just don't know how many. I'm hoping Windows Server 2022. It is yeah. 2022, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I hope 2022 will offer that. Yeah. I mean, it's, and it's one of those funny things where I don't know how many large scale enterprise organizations are running all of their DNS infrastructure on Microsoft product that that's just hasn't been as common for me to see at mm -hmm. like large scale in a, you know fortune shops i don't know what you guys is what what you're all i mean you know you could you get the old school open source shops running bind dns everywhere right and mm -hmm. and they're they're doing that um otherwise they're usually running commercial product you know whether that's infoblox or blue cat or men and mice or you know something that's you know, a little bit more scalable, a little bit more performance tuned, probably has a better, a little bit better management UI in, in regards to trying to work with it, maybe API driven a little bit more. And I think that's, that's a little bit more common to see. And, and those products all support DNS 6.4 without any, not any issue. So, you know, in terms of the commercial products that are out there, I'd say you're probably in good hands on that side. Shouldn't be super nervous if you're trying to get, you know, the DNS 6.4 side working. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I mean, what other what other issues do we face with design choices around around this? I mean, it's talked a little bit about some of the geography, you know, issues that you can divide stuff up. You could obviously do this for logical reasons too. Like it doesn't have to be geographic based. You could do it for other logical reasons, uh, whether you're running VRFs or overlays or whatever else, and you could build prefixes that are specific for those and allow you to sort of uniquely identify the traffic mm -hmm. in a different way and use different public v4 addresses or private v4 addresses to solve for that particular problem so the other thing that's a little weird is you can stick your nat 64 device behind a nat 44 device right so you can do the the same sort of overloading that you're used to doing at least on the outbound basis side mm -hmm. um, to to go ahead and reach that so that was i think that's the other common design question we sort of get oh do i have to chew up public v4 addresses on my nat 64 device in order to get this to work and uh, no you don't <laughs> you can use private rfc 1918 space and then not translate that across whatever you know regular ipv4 44 you know private to to public so it's really not six four four 
four. 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 Robinary <laughs> <laughs> fours you need to run, yeah. <laughs> yeah In the other it's direction, just, it's four, 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 six. You're right. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yeah. so whatever amount of latency you need to add into your system, you just put more fours on there. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's possible to do that. So I just, just to be clear, because I don't want anyone to be confused about that. I don't know. Uh, any other design choices, considerations? I mean, there is, there is a, a, there is a universal global prefix for, for NAT64, DNS64, right? Um, Right, which uh, I don't believe it's recommended that that you use. I think in general, I, and I don't know if that's for security reasons or I've I've heard sort of different takes on it. But uh, but uh, yeah, the the sixty four colon is it ff nine b double colon slash ninety six is that mm -hmm. what you're referring to? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm glad someone can remember that off the top of their head because that's <laughs> not me. Um, yeah, I don't even pay attention to that. Obviously, my yeah. designs. Now that I've told focus. you what it is, uh, don't use it. Is a, I think that's what we're maybe <laughs> suggesting, and, and maybe probably, that's the reason it's why. Fine for testing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. it's fine for yeah. testing. Yeah, but everybody exactly. knows it, so you know you you probably want to not not that we really advocate security through obscurity in these parts, but uh, yeah, it's in general. I, I don't think it's recommended that you use it. Yeah. And one of the reasons you can use this is because it doesn't reach escape velocity to get off your network, right? So yeah. it's it's V6 is being constrained within your network because you're you're terminating your traffic on that NAT64 device. So that address never leaks out to the public internet at all. It gets transformed into a V4 request and then comes back and gets translated back into that prefix. So just just to be really clear yeah. <laughs> about it, what happens, it, it's there. isolated, right? So yeah, it's yeah. isolated, yeah. exactly. So so there so it's possible to use that prefix and and probably in a lab or you know if you're testing something in a public cloud or something like that, it's perfectly fine to yeah. mm -hmm. to play around with that prefix and have it available if you don't have a prefix readily available to go ahead and test and, and work with. So yeah, it's only a, a ninety six, so you could create just an individual slash sixty four. Put a slash ninety six prefix on it somewhere in your in your network, so you probably have plenty of IPv six uh, global addresses to do this right. with. And sometimes I've seen organizations will do like two thousand colon two thousand colon six four colon ff nine b. They'll put six four ff nine b somewhere in that mm -hmm. uh, address, so they know ah okay this is my <laughs> yeah uh, DNS six four prefix that I'm using. Right. And then you can build as many of those as you need per whatever high available redundant mm -hmm. sort of configuration you're building across your network. Although I would just use global unicast prefixes to define that to probably keep your routing topology a little bit easier. Um, yeah, but, it's recommended to do that. I think it's probably just to avoid overlaps because if everyone's using 64FF9B and yeah. then you want to actually use a NAT64 DNS 64 service to talk to a partner network and they're also using 64FF9B, then there's like, there's kind of overlaps then on both sides or it may interoperability may be difficult if everyone's using that well-known prefix. Right. Then you have to do NAT66. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So NAT66, NAT66, and then, yeah, back the other way, 44466. Glad we got to the bottom of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can make some horrible design decisions if you if you want to go down the, the and chase that one. So yeah, yeah. The, definitely avoid that. And that and that's why we say just use a portion of your global unicast prefix to to go ahead and and uh, assign out for those particular NAT64 prefixes that you want to have per device. 
Um, I don't know. There are other transition technologies that we haven't even talked about. We've mainly talked about NAND64 DNS before, but why don't we briefly chat about one or two of the others um, that might be useful for folks? Um, obviously, uh, I think the most useful one is, is probably the ser using a server load balancer to be able to provide mm -hmm. access for, for resources. Uh, and so putting a server load balancer in front uh, as a six to four and simply just making IPv IPv4 only resources, uh, giving them, you know, basically assigning them out to access via an IPv6 virtual IP through a server load balancer uh, really sort of solves a lot of these problems and allows you to uh, effectively avoid the NAT64, DNS64 requirement because you mm -hmm. made them available via IPv6. And so the IPv6 resources can just look them up. They get a quad A record. They connect to the server load balancer. It terminates the session. It br brings up a new session talking IPv4, stitches the two together, and you're you're set. You're done. If you're running a v6 only data center, mm -hmm. you can provide IPv4 virtual IPs in the front and uh, basically allow your v4 resources to talk to your v6 only data center resources, and you're and you can solve it in both directions on the exact same device. Just yeah. sort of a nice go either direction um, yep. capability. And you can obviously do traditional server load balancer four to four or six to six, right? That's just a that's sort of just a given in terms of the platform capabilities. But that's a nice solution offering, especially for those that are trying to figure out how to scale their data centers appropriately and how to make those things available. And most folks mm -hmm. are probably transitioning and turning on IPv6 and like client access networks first, yeah, versus maybe maybe some other locations. And so that's just a just a consideration. I'm not saying it's 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 perfect. There are some limitations around what server load balancers can do. They're very similar, and and you're going to get some weird behavior about like you know X4 headers, <laughs> forwarders, mm -hmm. right? For the, for the headers that are being passed from one side to the other, so your your apps better know how to handle you know getting a V6 address when it's expecting to see a V4 or vice versa, right? Yeah. So those are those are things at the web tier that you might need to be aware of that maybe will catch you off guard in terms of how your application behaves. And then um, sort of casually mentioned, you know, MPT v6 and NAT 6.6, just because the existence of NAT in v6 is, is real. It is there. And if you need to be talking from, you know, a particular prefix to another one for any given reasons and you need to translate, uh, it is possible. It's not supported on every single platform that you would expect. So MPT v6 or NAT 6.6 may or may not be supported equally well on the same platform, may not be available on one, and may be available on another, et cetera. But so your mileage will vary. And that's obviously talking V4 to V or V6 to V6. Doesn't have any V4 involved, but at least make mention of it because it is a transition technology solution. And you know, to add to that, uh the, the idea of you know, because we're used to sort of thinking of NAT in terms of V4 and having, you know, private addressing on one side and public addressing on the other, things like NAT NPT V6, where it's it's equally likely that you'd have uh, global addressing on both sides. Uh, yes. you're, you're using it to solve that problem. And then of course it's stateless. So from a scaling standpoint, it's, you know, it's not the same consideration as NAT 6.6, but just a couple of points to keep in mind. Yeah. Yeah. Very, it's important ones because people may not necessarily understand how they're going to leverage uh, MPT V6 or NAT 6.6 in that way. Um, and then I guess the last one is SIT, which is the stateless IP and IP. For the for the tunneling side and and just how that sort of plays out because this is a sort of a unique sort of capability within IPv4 IPv6 to basically allow you to talk to you know a whole disparate set of you can assign basically v6 prefixes for route locations for representation of IPv4 resources and then 
statelessly translate between one and the other um, at the edge for wherever you're you know, egressing to get to that IPv4 resource. It'll flop it back and forth for you. Um, and basically, because every single slash 64 can basically consume, represent all of the internet squared today, right? Every single bit of, of, of V4 address space, you can basically represent all of the V4 address space in a single slash 64. So you can basically just assign 64s to whatever V4 related network you're trying to talk to and you guaranteed uniqueness for every single address that could present itself in, in IPv4 and represent that in an IPv6 prefix, right? So it allows you to sort of do that automatically. And I don't think we need to go into the crazy details about how it works <laughs> uh, per se, but it is a, it is a useful tool in the tool belt, mm -hmm. uh, especially for like managed service providers or, you know, service providers who are trying to, you know, sort of solve for the, I've got a lot of V4 networks I'm trying to talk to all at the same time uh, that may all have the same RFC 1918 address space even. Mm -hmm. And I can build a unique V6 address that represents that RFC 1918, but represent it with a V6 prefix so that it becomes unique. Like I'm putting unique values um, to that, to that, even that overlapping address space. So I can sort of solve that problem. I don't know. Is there any other use cases you guys can think of with SIT? I mean, that's sort of the quick. No, I think you touched on the, one. the important ones. I think that's the quick and easy ones that, mm -hmm. that come to mind anyway. I don't, and, and SIT is, is something that you should have. You, you do some more reading. There's some, some interesting things that you can do with it design wise. But I think it's probably beyond what, you know, I would say it's it's sort of commonly done. It's it's a nice to have in the tool belt, but it doesn't it doesn't solve any of the problems around name name resolution and how do you get to a resource, which I think is one of the reasons many people like the idea of NAT64, DNS64. Uh, any any other thoughts, you guys? I mean, I think we worked our way through sort of the high-level thought processes around a lot of transition translation technology components and where those things need to be resident. I don't know. We, we, and we get, we get this, we get the, one of the reasons we want to talk about this is we get asked by our customers, <laughs> these particular questions a lot. And so it's, it's useful to be able to talk through them. I don't know, Scott, did we miss anything off our list off the top of your head or? No, it's, it's good. It's fun to test these things in a lab. And that's yeah. where you learn how they work and <laughs> don't where, they don't, where they don't work. <laughs> <Yeah. more importantly. laughs> Debug the DNS traffic, you know, Look at the translator, look at the translation mm -hmm. table, the state table, uh, see how they're working together. Uh, that, this we're is not, really important why together. you have a lab that's got dual stack client networks and V6 only client networks. And then yes. you want some servers that only have A records and some servers that have both an A and a quad A record and some servers that are V6 only servers and test the combinations. And you might need to make like a little spreadsheet and a matrix and say, can this get to, can node A get to server A, B, and C? Can node B get to server A, B, and C? Can node C get to server A, B, and C? And you'll create a matrix and validate to yourself that they all work and which technique you're using in which part of the topology in which case. So it's it's fun to test all these things and see that they actually work. Yeah, and, and, and also that you can actually map where it's going next hop for every server, every service type. As it traverses through the network, that's super important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very cool. I, well, there we go. We we solved the design-related problems for everyone on transition technologies. It's done. Uh, we solved it. <laughs> I, feel, I feel pretty good about it. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> As all this stuff comes crashing down, they're like, those guys on the podcast told me this stuff worked. They made it sound so easy. Yeah, tested in the lab. 
uh, run Jewel. You can you can test a ton of stuff on a Raspberry Pi with Jewel. So you can definitely definitely do that. That's a great way to start. Um, I don't know. What are, is there any other tools we wanted to, to mention really quickly? I mean, you're you're going to use your standard DNS tools. So use Dig, NS Lookup if you're you know dealing with older older OSs. I don't know what else would you would you commonly use for for testing this besides just web pages and you know regular connectivity. It's obviously going to have to use DNS. So if it doesn't use DNS. Not going to work the way you expect, but that's okay. Well, I guess, and we kind of breezed past the uh, the you know the fact that uh, DNSSEC is violated by what DNS six four does. Um, I, I think there there are just some you know check boxes that that you can use if you're using a commercial uh, you know enterprise or carrier grade like DNS system or setup or appliance. But I, I don't, don't want to. Well, I'm sorry. Yeah, exactly. And I I don't want to I don't want to sort of gloss over that. But I guess the the, the overlapping then circles between the folks that are rabidly, you know, uh, evangelizing DNSSEC and IPv6 are <laughs> pretty much one to one. So I guess mm -hmm. you're maybe yes. not. Well, to, yeah. The Go other ahead. side is is whichever is doing the actual testing, the resolver testing to actually validate. It's probably not on the end client machine. It's probably actually on the DNS server itself. Which yeah. case, it can synthesize a record and lie to you all at once. Exactly. It's the, one, it's the one doing the validation. So. Yeah. It's, it's the like oh, I'm just going to ignore that. I'm just going to yeah. ignore that validation <laughs> and lie to you anyway. I mean, if you're actually testing on your on your on your machine, well, good on you. Um, yeah, <laughs> but but just realize it's not going to pass that check if you're actually doing that on yeah. on your local machine for any given reason. I don't yeah. I don't know if this would this yeah when you configure any... yeah when you configure DNS six four on bind in the options section break dash DNS sec yes yes <laughs> that's what is. you said <laughs> yeah. yeah and does it does this have any impact at all on like some zero trust configurations or anything Scott do you think it's like I guess as we start moving towards that where namespaces may you know matter a lot more in terms of like maybe validations there that might start introducing some problems uh, later for folks but I haven't heard anything specific about you know, about anyone running into any issues there, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's a lot more like names and bounds checking that's going on for things like, you know, or, you know, all the zero trust related components that are happening um, as an initiative overall, it seems like just adoption wise, I wouldn't be surprised if you start seeing some of that. Anyway. I think it depends on where you put your policy enforcement point. Oh, good point. Because it could be on the firewall in the core. If your policy and Enforcement point or your S, you know, software-defined perimeter gateway is close to the server, then that's probably where you would have a load balancer doing that type of function. And it's probably a reverse proxy, as you Got mentioned, it. that style. Right. Be closer to the server side. But if it was in the core, then that core device could be doing that NAT64 function. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I knew there was a reason you're you're smart on this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey guys, I, I think we—I think that's a wrap for us. I think we, we we can call it we can call it good there. So you know, hey, unlike V6, we run out of space for the podcast. You can reach the IPv6 Buzz podcast on Twitter. We're at IPv6 Buzz, and you can also hit up each one of us on Twitter too. Uh, Tom is at IPv6 Tom. Scott is at Scott Hogue, and I'm at E Horley. Thanks for listening to the IPv6 Buzz. You can find us on the Packer Pushers or any of your favorite podcast apps. Just search for IPv6 Buzz. And if you like the show, please give us a rating on iTunes. Um, if you like this podcast, we really recommend you check out Heavy Networking, Day 2 Cloud, and the Network Break podcast, plus all the other great technical content over at packetpushers.net. So long and until next time, we'll see you on the internet. The IPv6 internet, that is.
Thanks for listening to IPv6 Buzz, a podcast devoted to truth, justice, and 128 bits of address space. IPv6.